Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Dogs are among the most popular pets worldwide and arguably the animal that has benefited most from domestication. We humans love dogs. There are lots of positive characteristics we associate with dogs, but usually intelligence isn't one. We don't think of them as having the same smarts as, say, chimps, dolphins, or even cats. But is that fair? Just how clever is man's best friend? Dr. Brian Hare is Associate Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Duke University in North Carolina and author of The Genius of Dogs, How Dogs Are Smarter Than You Think. He joins me now. Hi, Brian. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. So you have a very interesting job. Can I ask, what drew you to studying animal psychology in the beginning? (laughs) Well, uh, probably my childhood best friend who was a Labrador retriever, uh, like everybody else, you know, I went everywhere with him and we were best buddies and I was always thinking about, well, how does his mind work? How does he think? Does he think like I do? Does he think in different ways? Does he love me like I love him? And uh, I think all those questions uh, just continue to fascinate me. And when I went to school and realized that there was a whole you know, group of scientists working on these problems, I was like, oh, man, I went on that team. Oh, that's brilliant. So you wanted the answers to questions, like a true scientist's beginning, really. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, if, if, you're steep, uh, if, you, if you stare deeply into uh, any animal's eyes, uh, whether it's a bonobo or a chimpanzee or your dog or your cat, and it's just impossible not to wonder, well, how are they thinking? And um, are they like us? Are they not like us? And um, watching their natural behavior gives you some great clues, uh, obviously, but um, I got really excited about also using a cognitive approach. And the idea is that by doing kind of fun games where uh, you set them up with an experiment, so there's a control and an experimental condition, a lot of times you can you can actually sort of see into the minds of other animals. Uh, you, can, you can see in their behavior uh, how their unobservable minds operate. And that to this day uh, is just so exciting to me, uh, you know, that we could actually um, uh, potentially know what's going on in the mind of an organism. You can't just have a conversation like you and I are having. So you're talking there about cognition. So you have a dognition program, which I just have to say is a great name. Great name. Um, so what <laughs> um, is dognition exactly? Well, dognition is um, the extension of our research we do here at the university. Um, here at the university, we have people bring their pet dogs in, um, just like people have historically brought their children in to have uh, cognitive testing or looking at how children develop uh, psychologically. We just do the same thing with dogs now. We have people bring their four-legged kids in, um, and we're really interested in all sorts of questions about dog psychology. And seeing how much fun uh, dog owners were having doing this, we realized, well, heck, it shouldn't just be people who live close to my university uh, here in North Carolina, why can't we provide some of these same fun games to everybody in the whole world, including in, let's say, Ireland? <laughs> so we uh, we said, well, why don't we um, put some of our best games online? And we created a website called dognition.com. And you can go and sign up. Um, and you can play some of the same games we use here uh, to not just understand our dogs better, um, and it does do that. It helps you understand your dog better, um, but also those same games that you can play with your dog. It's they're the same 
things we use to sort of try to assess the best working dogs. So dogs that are going to be used in um, bomb detection or helping disabled people. Um, you know, what Dognition does is it allows you to compare your dog to other dogs. Because when people say, oh, their dog is so smart, I always think to myself, well, compared to what? And the, I think the fair comparison is other dogs. So once you finish playing the games we provide, your dog is compared to all the other dogs in our database. And you get a nice report that tells you not just is your dog smart or not, but of the different types of intelligence that dogs have, where is your dog sort of remarkable and um, maybe where are they sort of more like every other dog in the pack? So dogs vary too, like their personalities, their intelligence, that all varies between like individual dogs, dog breeds, is it like humans? What kind all of, of differences? All, all of everything it. You just, absolutely, everything you just said. There's tremendous individual variability between dogs. If, if you can tell me what uh, breed of dog you have, it doesn't really uh, – as somebody who studies dog psychology, it doesn't really tell me much more than what your dog looks like. Um, and to make that concrete, uh, here at, uh, uh, at the university, Duke University, we've done a study where we studied Labrador retrievers that find bombs. And we've done – we used the same games and tests as, to look at uh, Labrador retrievers that help disabled people. And this is the same uh, breed. Uh, they've been intensively raised and in really similar ways. They've had the, and before they're trained, we found that their psychological profiles are as different as some species that we've studied wow. um, when we compared two species. And this is within Labrador retrievers. So you can have very different psychology even within one single breed. So – Say, for example, I always think that German Shepherds are really smart, but that mightn't actually be true. It's just that I have met some smart German Shepherds. That's right. And then and then I would even take it farther than that. And I would say smarts or intelligence isn't just uh, one thing. So it ends up that um, we have very nice evidence that dogs have at least five different types of intelligence. Um, and those are the things you can measure uh, at Dognition. So one would be their uh, sort of empathy towards you. Another would be how clever or flexible they are at communicating with you using verbal signal or sorry, nonverbal signals like gestures. Um, another would be how attentive they are to what you can or cannot see. So are you even watching when they're trying to communicate with you or when they're trying to steal something or obey or disobey you? Uh, an, another one would be, are they capable of inferential reasoning so they can infer the solution to a problem they've never seen before, or do they just have to learn everything, uh, from scratch? And the final one is something people will be, um, most familiar with is just how long can they remember things? Um, so each of those types of intelligence, you can have an amazing memory and it's not going to really tell me much about your dog's empathy. You can have amazing inferential skills. It's not going to tell me much about their communicative skills. You've really got to measure those things independently because they vary independently within each dog. And so then that's what creates all this individual variability that we see even within a breed in terms of their psychology. You know, you hear about the aggressive breeds of dogs. So you hear about pit bulls or rottweilers, it changes. So is aggression naturally genetically in those dogs or is it just that they're stronger dogs so if they are aggressive the damage done is worse so that's a can of worms um <laughs> and it's a complicated question um and my view is that uh the answer is probably surprising to most people um 
the short version is that, yes, there are some individual dogs that are in breeds that people typically will characterize as aggressive that happen to be aggressive. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can see any dog that is in any breed and then assume that all of those dogs are going to be aggressive. Um, and the reason is because I think we have this strange idea about evolution. I think people think that evolution is finished, um, that that's something that happened a really long time ago. Um, but Darwin began the or origin of species talking about the how rapidly domestication and artificial selection humans choosing which animals can breed together can cause evolution so you can take a small group of any breed you wanted uh, and you could select them to be more aggressive and you'd get a subgroup of uh, let's say German shepherds that are really aggressive towards people but it doesn't mean that the rest of the German shepherds are aggressive. It's just that small population that's been bred for that. Um, so when you're talking about artificial selection, you can really push evolution very, very quickly. Um, and it's why the laws that are sort of breed specific uh, really aren't going to be effective um, because they don't really address how evolution actually works. So actually, on the topic of evolution, how different is it how we interact and socialize with dogs now versus, you know, a couple of thousand years ago, even, you know, now they're they're your best friend, really. People carry them everywhere. They can go on planes. They're acceptable a lot more places. Like, how has that changed, I guess, the dog psychology over time? Right. Well, it is absolutely the case that um, uh, it's not just over the last few thousand years. It's really over the last few decades. Um, and the funny thing is I have a funny way to think about this. Um, the, I think the real reason that dogs have gone from, you know, the backyard to the bed within 50 years is with the advent of, uh, pesticides that effectively control for fleas and ticks. Because if you didn't have the veterinary, um, care and the veterinary, um, intervention, uh, would people really be having, you know, not just dogs, but also fleas and ticks in their beds with them? I don't think so. So um, I really think the main innovation that has uh, allowed for this new type of relationship is these uh, pesticides that have been invented. Um, so it's weird to think about that our relationship is really because of pesticides. Um, but but I, I actually think that's the main thing that has facilitated it. I, yeah, I never even would have thought about that. The fact that they're now just, it's more enjoyable to have them in your house, I guess, if you don't have a risk of getting fleas. You know? and, 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 the, and, you know, one of, the, one of the, if you understand, obviously, that there's an arms race between the pests and the chemicals that we use to control them, you can be nervous about, well, is there going to be um, resistance? And does that mean that, you know, 30, 20, 50 years from now, we're not going to be able to have this type of relationship because we're not going to be able to continually create things that will keep pests at bay. I don't think a lot of people will want to think about that if their dog is their best friend and they're used to having them in the house. It's a horrible thing to contemplate, but, but you know, that's... It, that's why when people ask me, well, you know, isn't evolution something that happened a long time ago? Why do we care about that? Um, evolution is like gravity. You can't stop it uh, any more than, you know, if I drop something, I can't stop gravity from making it go down. I can't stop evolution um, from operating uh, and, you know, potentially uh, pest 
are out of all of our our control of them and you know we're, we're gonna have to deal with uh, the challenges that creates for our relationships with our pets just like antibiotic resistance yeah, it's a scary thought. Let's go back to the dog's memories. I, I think I preferred the thought that all dogs can stay inside. Um, so we've compared. <laughs> no, you're fine. Do you know you just like to pretend that everything will be fine? This is what I this is what I like to do. Hey, you know, dogs are supposed to be the happy, soothing thing, right? So exactly. Uh, let's um, so we've compared dogs to other dogs and breeds and, you know, the variability there. How do they compare to other animals? But their memory, their psychology you know, we like I said at the beginning, you know, we think of chimps, dolphins being incredibly intelligent. Where do dogs, where are dogs on that scale? Well, uh, 25 years ago, if you'd asked uh, someone who studies animal cognition, um, you know, tell me about an animal that you think has remarkable um, intelligence. I don't think dogs would be very high on many people's lists. But now they would be one of the first species that people would bring up because what we found over the last 20 years of research, and not just myself, but lots of my colleagues, is that um, wild dogs are pretty unremarkable uh, in many domains of intelligence. There's sort of one place where they are the absolute genius. Um, they have evolved very specialized abilities that mimic abilities that our young infants have as they start to begin speaking and participating in culture. Um, and the abilities that dogs have evolved that really outstrip what we see in our closest genetic relatives that are still alive, bonobos and chimpanzees, and are really different even from uh, what we see from the close relatives of dogs, the wolves, um, is this skill they have at cooperating and communicating with us using our um, gestures, so pointing or using our arms to ask them to do things or have them understand what we want from them, and then uh, also making eye contact and um, uh, interacting them with them in face-to-face -face interactions. Both of those two things are really the first two things that come online as young infants between the age of nine to 12 months old, begin to uh, acquire language and start interacting socially in a new way that we don't see other great apes interacting with each other. And dogs have really both of those things that we don't see in bonobos and chimpanzees. And we think that's what's allowed them to bond with us and be so successful. Uh, if if you think about, um, you know, I love wolves and I'm so sorry they're endangered, but if you think about the success of the, of the population of wolves that evolved into dogs, boy, did they win evolutionarily because there's, you know, hundreds of millions of dogs on the planet and there's a few hundred thousand wolves remaining. And we think it's this remarkable genius of being able to communicate with us in a way that our young infants do and also to have this face-to-face -face interaction. The, the really cool fact on that one is that it ends up that that face-to-face -face interaction leads to social bonding in the same way that you see social bonding between uh, human and infant. And we can talk more about that. But that's the answer is that they really are remarkable um, on some with some skills that are really important to becoming human. And on this, because this is something now I'm a scientist and I've been guilty of, I guess, putting personalities on things that don't have them. You know, I, I put human feelings on things that I shouldn't. And it's a bad, it's a bad scientific trait. But you know those videos online when you see a dog has done bad 
and they're kind of like they're hiding yeah. under their paw or they are smiling or, you know, they're like, this is them loving me. Can they feel that? Like, can they feel shame, embarrassment? Do they know they've done wrong? Do they love us? So um, shame, embarrassment, um, and I don't know if there was a third one. I, I, and then you said love. Um, on shame and embarrassment, uh, I would say there isn't any good scientific evidence. There's not a good uh, – because to understand shame and embarrassment, you can't just watch behavior. Anytime you see behavior like the guilty look at a dog where it's sort of you're approaching to open the door or something and it kind of – you know. Um, sh- shrinks itself down away from you and you're, oh, you feel guilty. Um, it could be the dog feels guilty or the dog could just say, oh, well, you're, you know, sort of um, in charge and I'm going to have this canine reaction that all canids have when they see an individual approaching who's sort of in charge and shrink away. Uh, it doesn't mean that when they shrink away that they feel shame and guilt. So the only way to distinguish between those two things would be to do a clever experiment Um, And we don't really have anything as a scientist that I can point to that would sort of be the conclusive evidence, uh, you know, wow, look, these are two demonstrations that have shame and guilt. So uh, what I can what I can tell you is that it's true that many people do think that those types of behaviors are evidence of shame and guilt. And in fact, there's there is a a clever experiment by Alexander Horowitz from uh, Barnard um, University in New York. And she basically was able to show that people misjudge whether a dog has actually done anything bad or not based on that behavior. So she basically had dogs misbehave and then see if people could determine when they misbehaved or not. And in fact, they couldn't tell when the dog had done something bad. All they were doing is if the dog shrunk down, they were saying, oh, they must be guilty. But it ends up the dogs weren't guilty often when they did that. On the love... Um, Now, that's where there is some really cool evidence, and it goes back to that face-to-face interaction we were talking about and how important that is for social bonding between parent and offspring uh, within our species. And it ends up in humans, as your uh, infant is uh, making eye contact with you, having a face-to-face interaction, adults who are sleep-deprived and having to work so hard to take care of these little bundles of joy, the way that human infants are able to keep that love going is they're creating through that face-to-face interaction oxytocin uh, or the hormone that leads to social bonding in both uh, the, the father and the mother and in themselves so that there's this feeling of uh, social need and uh, love. Um, and so it ends up that dogs in those face-to-face interactions they're having with us have hijacked that same bonding pathway. Uh, and we have evidence uh, that dogs, um, and it's really the first species it's been demonstrated with, um, when they're making eye contact with us or when we're petting them and, and physically interacting with them, they, just like a human infant, are creating oxytocin in us and in themselves. And so that love you feel for your dog, there really is a neural hormonal mechanism uh, that's driving uh, the strong bond we all feel. Oh, that that actually makes me feel very good. Whatever about the shame and embarrassment, but the fact that they're feeling what I'm feeling when I look at them makes me feel very warm inside. I like that. <laughs> Dogs really are great, aren't they? Like they are. They're they just, are. They're great. They're just great. They, they are. And and in fact, that was a recent discovery. And um, since that discovery's been made, people have been now trying to use the knowledge that dogs actually can increase oxytocin 
in um, people as they're bonding with a dog to intervene and maybe help people, um, some children in, uh, particularly who have autism or other developmental delays um, to maybe feel more comfortable or um, you know, uh, have a social partner that they um, feel safe with and uh, encourage them uh, in a way that we didn't know was possible before. It's so fascinating. Dr. Brian Hare, thank you so much for chatting to me. So you want people to go on to dognition.com, is it, and do these games with their dogs? I hope they do, and I hope they have a great time, and I promise you'll learn something you didn't know about your best friend at home. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.